G'day, welcome to Two Coaches and a Coffee, and welcome back to Darren and myself. We've uh, had a bit of a hiatus for a couple of weeks. Darren, our start to the year's been pretty busy, mate. How are you going? Going all right, mate. It's uh, 35 degrees, a bit less than that here in Adelaide and in the middle of pre-season and uh, not jaunting all around the world like yourself, mate. How is uh, how is your trip to America? Yeah, the US was uh, very, very busy. So I guess to, to elaborate there, I uh, attended uh, a whole mess of meetings, but uh, I went to the US to the Catapult uh, Football Users Conference. So that was... Um, all their football clients, um, NFL, college, were invited into a single little private conference in uh, Las Vegas. Um, there was a presentation by different groups. Uh, we got to present SpeedSig and, and, and show it off a little bit and have a little stand and talk about it and so forth and so on. So, yeah, I, I had a really interesting trip at that. It's, there was there was that um, I've also got to get around the country and see some of my clients in the US, see some, some new clients. I uh, spent some, uh, some real good time in Texas. Um, I think they, they say Texas is like Western Australia, so maybe that's why I did over sure. But um, very, very, very interesting. I think, uh, I guess from a perspective of just giving the lay of the land particularly, I know there's a lot of people listening overseas, but I will say this. A lot of people tell me how bad sports science is in the US, how far in front of Australia are. Well, I'm going to tell you, I'm not exactly sure that's true. I think there are no question that there's some people in the US that are not super impressive, and, but I think equally there are plenty that I could tell you about in Australia that are fairly average as well. From that sports science perspective, particularly doing you know running things through Excel and really not looking in detail, but I met some people and saw some programs over there that were absolutely benchmarked. If I, I call one out, I'll call out the University of Miami. I think Eric uh, Renahan over there and his team are doing an unbelievable job sports science wise in a place that's very complicated with regards to uh, the the uh, I don't know the segregation of medical and strength and conditioning and coaching. Uh, they're doing a magnificent job to bring them together. And they like and I'll, I'll use an example. Um, they're obviously in Miami, very very humid summer, uh, very hard environmental conditions, and they've they've been out of create some great data that's been able to help the coaches understand when and when to train and not train in and around the heat given or in humidity that will direct the impacts of the sun down there. So they're doing some great stuff. I know there's plenty of people in Australia doing environmental stuff. It's no brainer. But the way that they did it down there was just very, very impressive. Um, and equally, I think I'll take another little stand, you know, Australia's seems to have moved down the path of a lot of younger coaches, but there's an old bull and that uh, one of the one of the uh, absolute legends of college football strength and conditioning, a guy named Coach Tom Moffat um, at Texas A&M. He's just taken over down there, one of the you know the great football programs in the US. 
And I met Tommy and his staff. I went out to College Station uh, in the middle of Texas, uh, big trucks everywhere, and freezing cold of all things. But for Tommy, who's a guy in his 60s, uh, one of the most progressive minds I've met, excellent. Uh, had some unbelievable questions. I actually presented speeches them down there. Uh, great questions, super engaging. I hung out with them and watched them train. And, you know, Tommy, Tommy went through a lot of the culture and how they're, they're trying to rebuild the program. He's just gone in there with his new team. So that's super. I'm talking a lot, but super impressive for mine. Um, I think there's a lot of people doing some very cool stuff in the US and thinking, and I think, um, if I use that phrase, thinking, I think there's people really challenging uh, the status quo. I think there's people trying to look at the problems they have and trying to really find good solutions. And they're not all just tech-based. I think some of them are, some of them are cultural. Uh, obviously, big programs. You know, they've got 110 guys going through that. So the way they teach is even an interesting thing. So anyway... That's been my week, yeah. my last week and a bit. So what, uh, by the way, um, we I guess we pride ourselves on a lot of the feedback that we get from this podcast or certainly that I get are that uh, people just feel like they're in the room with us and we're just kind of, you know, just, just chatting generally. Um, it sounds like you're in the toilet there, Jay. So I uh, do apologise for the audio. That's what I'm getting. So uh, I'm, I'm just letting people know that that's... Yeah, that, that's no, I'm not in the toilet. I'm actually, I'm... I'm I'm in uh, the United Arab Emirates uh, doing another job over here, but I'm in my hotel room. I've got uh, a couple of days of hard coding in front of me, uh, but I'm catching up on my washing. So directly opposite me, and what you can probably hear, is my washing dryer catching up on which work before. So I am am living the life, mate. Like I am in my (laughs) hotel Got clothes hanging up everywhere. It's uh, yeah, it's it's elite, mate. It is elite. <laughs> I can imagine. Well, uh, over here, it's um, like I said, it's middle of middle of summer, and and uh, if you go onto the sort of AFL app, and and even for the overseas listeners, it's interesting going on to the AFL app. I don't know too many other leagues that have uh, journos go around to training and present. You know, comprehensive reports on training, so you can really get lost in it if you wanted. The one thing that a couple of staff members alerted me to today was that um, uh, everyone's doing match simulation, which is which is pretty big. So um, because it's it's uh, full contact and and you know your team's playing each other, so it's a, it's everyone's starting to do that now. And with that comes a massive risk of injury. And you hear stories in the past about. Um, you know, players doing ACLs and there's certainly been a couple already this year based on match simulation. Um, certainly been a bunch of soft tissue stuff and um, we we had a player uh, on Wednesday have a detached retina. Um, so there, there comes a risk. But I want to ask you, Jace, having been involved in both rugby and AFL, which are collision sports, Sort of battle hardening your body for those collisions. It comes with risk. Do you have a, a risk reward sort of policy in the way you do it? Do you integrate contact slowly over a period of time? How does it work for you? I, I think it's, a, it's an incredibly 
uh, intriguing question, particularly having just come from the States where we talked a lot about uh, guys going to spring camp for college football. They'll go to spring camp in a couple of months and the same question comes up. Now, rugby at the moment in Australia, they're playing super rugby this weekend. They're playing the first trials, super rugby teams, and they same thing. In the past couple of months, pre-Christmas, they're doing this heavy contact going on. So there's two sides. I think there's the risk of exposure to contact, so there's probability that things can happen and you can get injured. But one of the things I think you risk not doing if you don't do it is not so much getting your body acclimated to contact per se, but it's the timing and speed around how those contact elements occur. So making a tackle requires timing and skill. A good tackle will, you know, the guy executing the tackle will execute with skill and not hurt themselves. When you don't practice those things, I think you leave yourself open. But equally, there is the other side of the coin, too much of it. And we saw this, um, I think, around 2006 with the Wildbeats, where we just did so much contact. The coach at that time, uh, I don't know who that was, but the coach at that time did so much contact that players just began to fatigue and fatigue, and there was this inordinate run of shoulder injuries, the like. So there's definitely, like everything, I think there's a balancing act, but I don't think there's a genuine right or wrong. I think you've got to condition yourself to the speed of the game. And I think, not to drift from that subject, but I saw an article uh, Patrick Dangerfield put out about what Geelong are doing, that they're focusing on higher concentration of higher speed and reducing their total volume for the week, it brings in another question. Is that the direction we should go? I think if we look at what AFL did last year, the teams that executed Ruba, Collingwood, were top of the pops. They won the title and were convincing all year. They played extremely fast. So if you wind that back to the contact decision or discussion, you're executing super fast. You need to execute all of your skills at speed. So is the question then, do we drop rollers and handle all that? Um, I know the former coach I worked with in the AFL was absolutely adamant that, you know, we have to play contested football to be ready for that contest in the first game. And as I said, I think he's right. Anyway, a lot of babbling for me, mate. Danny, that makes sense to you. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Two Coaches and a Coffee is proudly sponsored by SpeedSig. If you work with field sport athletes, understanding how your players generate and control speed is critical to your effectiveness as a coach, medical practitioner or sports scientist. Acceleration, speed and deceleration not only can be generated using unique individual strategies, but those strategies change as an athlete gets stronger, as they develop better skills, most definitely when they suffer injuries, and as the athlete gets older. Does your athlete monitoring program cover these variables? SpeedSig uses IMU GPS technology that your team is already using 
to provide biomechanically validated and reliable data that describes how an athlete generates and controls speed. Check out our website for more detail at speedsig.com. Now back to two coaches and a coffee. Yeah, look, I guess to, to put in context for people who are listening outside of Australia, Patrick Dangerfield is one of the best players in the AFL. Um, he's getting on now. He's probably 35, 36, I reckon, or 34, 35 maybe. Um, but he's a really explosive player, and he's had some soft tissue injuries over the last couple of years, like like a lot of explosive players that puts him at high risk. Anyway, he, ca- he came out and, and said that rather than um, – Last year, they used to do about 400 metres sprint. I think he said they're doing sort of four or five times that. But rather than doing three sessions a week in pre-season, they're only doing two. Now, I don't know whether that was just him or the older players only doing two or whether the entire list is only doing two sessions a week. Um, But it's certainly an interesting way to go about it because most clubs are doing three or four um, sessions a week. And the article, and of course, you know, how journos like to take um, liberties with this, was saying uh, this is the way they're bulletproofing their body by overdosing on sprint running. And to actually give those figures, you know, 1,600-meter sprint in a week is pretty good if it is the sprint metric. And who knows what metrics um, they're using at Geelong or what cutoff points, uh, thresholds they're using at Geelong. But it was just interesting as a philosophy Um our guys certainly train, you know, three, four times a week on legs. Um, most of them four, some three. Um, very rarely would we we do less than that in preseason. But I did like the comment that he made there in that the idea is to make preseason very, very hard so that come game time, the body is thinking, oh, this is pretty easy. Now, it's never going to be that simple, um, but certainly to overload and then really cut back um, in season makes a lot of sense. I'm not well, sure that you could cut down the volume by that much. Um, or not, uh, I'm not I, sure that I would. I'm sure you can, but I'm not sure that I would. So you bring a great point, mate, Mike, is, again, we always on this podcast, where we, we play the hypothetical, we speculate, because you don't always have all the information. So we don't know what Geelong have done. They may have gone through a good block of doing three or four sessions a week, and now they've cut down to two. And that's where they're at. And they're running in the process, greater focus on uh, intensity rather than total volume. That could be where they're at, which is a, a really interesting approach. I think I know one AFL team last year who, through the course of the first half of the season, trained twice a week really hard and then cut back to one big session a week in season in the latter half of the season and paid great dividends. Now, that might be an approach that Collingwood or Geelong are taking. We don't know that. And and we're always speculating what you said. You get players saying things, sometimes out of context, um, sometimes not entirely accurately. So I think you have to take what's been written in the media with a grain of salt, but... The other side of the spectrum is they are carrying an older list and that is there a is there a direction they're taking because they've got guys that have got a lot of volume under their belt in years past. And yeah, I, I think that's a reasonable them, keeping keeping them healthy. I think that's a reasonable point. And I think philosophically, 
if you know a speed threshold that that player has hit before, let's say a weekly volume, let's say you versus me, you're an explosive animal, Jace, I'm a plotter. Um, and if we're both, you know, 30 years younger um, and uh, oh, in a week you, you can – in a week, you can tolerate sort of 400 metres of sprint, um, but I can only tolerate 200 metres sprint. And the way we work that out is, you know, in in the last year, have you done 400 metres of sprint and not been injured? So, therefore, that becomes your upper limit. Then I think that period of, of that period of time in, in sort of late January, early Feb in the AFL or, you know, six, seven weeks out for the season in other sports – you can afford to overload that little bit and expose players to that um, and, and take those risks. And with that risk does come, you know, the the, the risk of injury. Uh, and sometimes I reckon you could, you've just got to push into that zone a little bit. Of course, you don't want injuries to happen, um, but I think you do want some soreness and, you know, some awareness and things like that to to creep in. And you want your players to be feeling a bit fatigued and a bit flat so that, um, you know, with four or five weeks to go to the season, you can really freshen them up. And um, it with such a long preseason in AFL, in soccer, when you've only got five or six weeks, or in the NFL, when you might have less, different story. Uh, I'd certainly approach it differently. But I think in the AFL, that period of overloading and then recovery coming into the season makes sense. Well, the other, the other thing that we don't know about what Geelong are doing is. What other elements of their program have they changed? Right? It's, uh, so is their strength like drop back to accommodate this jump in speed? Things like that. Um, the context of the speed itself, right? Is it in training? So they're doing it under fatigue states and athletes are shooting to go quick, which is a really is an incredibly important part of the program because sure. you run cone, you run cone to cone, right? So I say, all right, we're going to run, let's say, 540s, right? We get 200 metres of high speed thereabouts, right? But that's kind of kind. I'm making the decision. You choose to be off we go. But the application of speed in a sport like AFL, when there are lots of times you can jog, NFL's a different thing or American football. There's kind of a, a window go. All snaps, everyone goes flat out. That's just... There is no jog in between, right? Whereas AFL, rugby, sports that have a transition component, you move from one competitive context to the next. There's got to be a decision to go. I remember in my time at Fremantle, I discussed that a lot with coaches too. It's not good enough that we just say, oh, we're going to go, you guys go with Jason, now we're going to do speed. Players have to learn to execute, choose to run fast within the context of their game and understand that they can go quick and then recover and do the next thing. Now, I know you're a big proponent of that type of approach. What's yeah, I think running psycho, not psychosocially, psychologically and neurally to react and um and uh, be forced to sprint and decelerate and uh, all those things when you're not plan when it's not pre-planned is massive. I do think, and we could go down a rabbit hole, or maybe it's one for next week, given the um, the duration we've gone already. That there's two elements to speed work, 
and as people far smarter than me in the speed world like yourself who have handled this a lot better but you need to protect the muscle from what you're going to ask it to do in the game which is simply run fast and run at you know 90% velocity and i think most clubs that i speak to around the world are pretty good at this they're pretty good at exposing players regularly to that peak speed so that's great line up um, run 50 metres cone to cone. Yep, you have, if you like, um, prepared the muscle for at some point in the next four or five days so that it's not a complete shock when you ask it to do it in the game. But that takes no appreciation of um, uh, of the context in which you're asking the muscle to um, react suddenly, react without any kind of prep, um, either psychologically or physically. Um, so I, I think you're right. You have to do that within the, the training drills themselves. And I think the really good programs uh, plan for that to happen in training and don't just accumulate, particularly the sprint running at the end or, or the beginning or the middle of training when, well, when, when the, I, you know, the performance coach might. Speed. Yeah, yeah, that's right. conversation last week in the US with a couple of different people about that you know when you're looking at reps like the the American football is very predicated on reps right? we're going to give yeah. X number of reps and and um, I'm going to do these type of repetitions and blah 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 they're all very controlled but it then comes back to have the player prepared for those, like you look at a wide receiver for a particular, there are definite routes to use Australianism that people are going to run, therefore they need to be prepared for that. But then in the game, they're going to react and be able to change and be a bit more ad hoc. And I think that's extremely uh, prevalent in your transition sports, AFL and soccer. Um, and I think... There's two things. It's not just the muscle. But there's a there's absolutely a, a skill acquisition to being able to run and react quickly under fatigue. That you don't default to poor patterns. That your your yep. um, patterns are strong, and you've got you know, good front side mechanics. All the rest of it, you can't accept. All those things that just have to happen automatically, even under fatigue. Um, and I I definitely know that when you speak to guys in the AFL, Australia, that are, in my opinion, really leading the way, and those are huge, you know, but you're getting those, you're getting those base patterns down early in your pre-season, and now, late in your pre-season, a lot of the speed work you're getting, it's, it's contextual, it's in the game, which, you know, we saw last year, there were teams that tried to play fast, but you can see just even their basic ball skills didn't match what they were trying to do because they hadn't practiced that speed. I think there are far more teams this year trying to go quick. And I think you'll see in the opening stages of the AFL, teams trying to play at breakneck speed because that's the way the game went last year. The team that won the competition played super fast from, from day dot and there were teams that couldn't handle that. So I think you're going to see a yeah, lot they, of teams do that path. They also, one of the things they did do, and, and we really need to finish this off um, <laughs> here because I've got to pick up the kids, but um, 
one of the things that they also did, which I reckon goes a little bit unnoticed, but they've been doing it in things like soccer and basketball for years. I don't know enough about field hockey or ice hockey. Um, but they also knew when to slow the game down. And in soccer, you can do that by just keeping possession of the ball, um, You know, not necessarily looking to go forward too much, but just give everybody a break by keeping possession of the ball. And, and Collingwood would have periods where they would just go unbelievably fast, but then just knew when to slow it down and just have a four or five stoppages where, right, everybody gather, uh, gather themselves, make a couple of rotations and then go again. And I reckon that um, had as much physical benefit for them as it did, um, you know, tactical and, and game speed. So I reckon that's pretty important. Uh, I um, but I agree with you. I think it's going to be a really speed-based opening to the season. Yeah. But I think, man, it brings an interesting perspective is that takes the ability to manage the game like that takes super leadership and you need people to be able to run that game and understand it, which we'll finish on this, but I'm a big believer in understanding how teams practice and how much influence the coach has at practice. We'll talk about this one next week, but coaches that over-dominate training, I think, have a massive Deleterious effect on the team's ability to do that in the game. But that controlling training and controlling practicing tempo, critically important. But that's a, that's a practiced art. Anyway, that's my piece. Darren, been a pleasure as always. And given I'm uh, spending a lot of time in front of the computer, this is my social activity for the day. Great stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you, go and, job, uh, mate. You, go, you go and do your domestics. And uh, I'll do my domestics and I'll, um, yeah, we'll speak next week. Well, we'll probably do one more episode from this room before I get back to Australia and uh, we'll go from there. Mate. But it's been a pleasure as always to, uh, I will say a quick thank you to all the people that are listening and are giving us feedback. We're hearing it. I'm enjoying what we're hearing back. So we're going to keep doing it for as uh, long as we reasonably can, even from the far corners of the earth. Right, uh, good stuff, Chase. Enjoy, enjoy the Middle East, and I'll uh, I'll speak to you next week. Right, buddy. Ciao, ciao. Cheers.